From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome sports fans. Welcome statistics fans. Welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Data Science here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend and lifetime collaborator, I hope for the future, Professor of uh, Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball on SiriusXM, our podcast version. Uh, We've been doing the podcast version for the last two years, but we're coming up on eight years now uh, doing our show. And of course, there's lots of ways to you to join the conversation. We tweet throughout the week at our Twitter handle at WMoneyball. And also you can email us with questions throughout the week at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Adi, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I know this is uh, not our baseball segment. We'll have that later. But the words pitchers and catchers report were not uttered. And it is a terrible, terrible disappointment. Well, do not worry. As you know, (laughs) as all of our listeners who have been listening to our podcast edition know, I think what we're going to do is we're going to spend the first uh, quarter of our show on COVID, which is what we've been doing for the last uh, two plus years. And then we'll move on in Q2 and Q3. We'll move on to talking about sports, of which baseball is on my list. There's a topic I want to talk to you about. And then in Q4, uh, we actually have a guest, as we do uh, all the time uh, here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, Rick Mackey, we hope, uh, is the right pronunciation. Uh, And we'll be talking to him about tennis, since he's one of the great tennis trainers of all time and one of the great leading professionals of all time. And we'll talk to him about analytics and its role in tennis. But let's get started with uh, COVID. And so, Adi, the nice thing, obviously, we enjoy it when all four of us are here. But when it's just you and me, one of the nice things is I essentially get to interview you. And so um, <laughs> I've got a seat. bunch. That's fine. Yeah. So I not only have a bunch of questions, but also one of the things, depending on timing wise, that we'll go to is um, I also copied from a year ago our notes for the show. So I have our one year ago in COVID. And what did we what were we talking about then? And what did we have right? And what did we not have right? But let's just start with 2022 before we go back to 2021. Uh, Let's start with what's your opinion about the potential need for a fourth shot? We know that in Israel, it has happened, I think, for people 60 and older and people with certain comorbidities and immunosuppression. But Let's just say, as we're thinking about globally, but even just the United States, Professor Weiner, do you think there's going to be a need for a fourth shot? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, It's a little hard to answer because of the lack of clinical trials to test these things. This is a point that I've tried to emphasize. The best way to understand causation, as any experimental scientist will tell you, any statistician, is through a placebo-controlled trial. None of those have been really taking place, at least globally. And because um, the impact of COVID on the population as a whole can be somewhat rare for extreme events, it takes an enormous amount of data to do it, which is one of the obstacles to clinical trials. So Israel, I know I've been, I've been, I've been following it closely. There's been some studies, there's lots of observational studies, some of them completely uncontrolled, just reporting, just data dumps of what you're observing. And, and, and I'm going to break it down into two, two groups. So for the plus 60 set, um, the data seems to be observational data. So, you know, you have to put your appropriate caveats on causality. Seems to indicate that a certainly a third and I even believe a fourth booster 
if you take if you if you believe the data coming out of Israel does lower the rate of severe illness and death. The problem, of course, is that the amount by which it lowers it isn't that much. And it's certainly within within the realm of observation. I mean, sort of confounding, which is, of course, the the thing you control for when you do observational studies. So let me ask you a question. It also seems to me that and and you've made it very clear to our listeners the challenges but there, to me there's even another level of complexity which is so when you say when we you and I are talking about a fourth shot let's add some other variables we'd love to know the answer to do they all have to be the same type like all four Pfizer what about the spacing and timing what about the dosage level what i'm trying to even point out to our listeners forget just and i don't want to forget it but forget just the idea we'd like a randomized placebo controlled trial uh, all of that, we actually would love to know what's the optimal spacing, doses level. Should we, should the first two shots be Pfizer, the next two do Moderna? And as you know, some of the studies they are doing are sort of looking at that. They're looking at were the first three shots the same as the fourth shot? Or are they looking at a different shot? But I'm just saying it's even more complex than the, I'll call it semi dumbed down version that you and I are discussing now. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, just a lot of these experiments and that kind of thing are in, are in a test tube. They look at the reactivity and, and of, the, of the antibody response, and those seem to be pretty positive in terms of boosting, and, and, uh, and, and you can actually look at spacing with that regard, but it doesn't, it's a huge gap from between what happens in the laboratory and people. And, and, and none of those real clinical trials are being tested. It's a shame. I mean, it's not at least at, at the level that I know of. Um, you know, and it's, but it's, again, it's really hard to do and expensive, but there is, and there isn't much variation naturally occurring to even do observational studies on the the mix and match. We don't have that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I'm going to tell a quick anecdote, um, which maybe, which centers on this boosting. Um, We have, uh, there's a lot of data in this country that, that purports to show that boosting actually helps a lot. This is not good data. And, and it actually contradicts what other countries are seeing who have much better data. And this is this is the, the 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 this is the it's in the news a lot. We talked about it in this show. Mm-hmm. We don't have a good counts of who's getting vaccines and who's not and when. And and you know we again one of the factors we talked about in the show is the enormous difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated just in background health. And think about it with plus sixty especially. Who are the people not getting vaccinated, not getting boosted in that age group? Wow, I mean they are they they differ enormously from the people who are. Now, you'd be tempted to say it's political. No, it's not. The political differences are, are, are at younger ages. Um, the big differences, and obviously there must be some political differences. We, we had this discussion when sure. we were in our studio, but it's extremely hard to tell whether, to ascertain whether the observations that we're seeing in the United States, that there's a big difference between boosted and unboosted in terms of serious outcomes. And the observations seen in other countries that see much smaller, significant, but much smaller differences. And in those places, they have a much better way of keeping track of who's getting what and when. And uh, and we just don't we don't we don't have the capability to do that. UK does. um, Socialized places do. And they can see when you got sick the first time. One thing that's interesting, speaking of boosters, my daughter just finished her five day isolation and just recovered from covid. And um, uh, immediately that grants her an, a three months or even six months extension to the required booster shot. She hasn't had her a booster shot. I mean, she's had a third, um, but she, uh, they're, they're trying to get everyone to do more. And uh, they know when you got sick and they, they, it's in your right. file and you get bumped. We don't have any of that. 
No. <laughs> Let me move on to a but still in the COVID world, but you even yeah. mentioned. So another thing that caught my eye, you know, it'd be great to spend, you know, I got a bunch of topics. I want to spend a few minutes on yeah, each yeah, yeah. is that I, I read just this morning that the UK plans to lift all COVID restrictions, all of them. Yes, all of them. So, all of them. So now my question to you is, you know, we might call that in some way a natural experiment or even or even though that's problematic because they wouldn't lift all restrictions if they thought there was going to be ridiculously severe consequences. A lot of people like to use these policy decisions as what in marketing we call natural experiments. Uh, it's not an experiment, but I'll compare this country to the rest. Because, well, yeah, but the country wouldn't have chosen that path. But either way, what do you think we're going to learn, maybe globally, from the UK's decision to lift all COVID restrictions, if anything, from a data and analytics perspective? Well, you know, um, we might learn something, but only if something happens that makes it different from other, from other countries. So, right. And it's hard to know exactly what it is, but, you know, there are countries that have lifted all COVID restrictions, Denmark in particular, um, Sweden has done so. And their number and of cases, as you even said last week, have gone up yeah, tremendously. Has gone up. You know, UK is very is somewhat similar in the United States. They do have, in terms of the case trackings, um, they have much, they have substantially lower death rates um, than the United States does. Yep. And there are lot, potentially lots of reasons for that. But I, I'm actually, I mean, but this, I think, is an interesting decision. I, I, I actually let people individually decide what levels of precaution they want to take. And I think this is something that has uh, been very difficult. So one of the things, if you look historically, I wonder whether that's in your list, we always were asking what's the effect of say, uh, precautions, lockdowns, um, uh, requirements, masking, et cetera. But unfortunately, behavior often is very individually motivated. So a place that didn't actually require masking, nevertheless, people didn't go out and worked at home and masked. What do you, how, do you, how do you then determine you're looking at the policy edges, not the actual activity by itself? For example, so in England, it could considerably be that people who are most at risk continue to take the most precautions, in which case um, you don't really know necessarily anything about but, um, the, the precautions that you're taking, just the requirement. But you agree what, in some sense, probably the best learning we'll get out of this from a statistical perspective is let's even just I know this is you know, we could debate for the rest of the show what the right level of aggregation is. But let's even just say we looked at the local block or locale or county level. We could certainly use each county as its own control. I mean, this is the classic, like what we're going to do, let's say I'm making up, let's say there's 200, 300, 400 counties in Great Britain. We could certainly look at their time series. We could compute the counterfactual projections of what would have happened had the data stayed, this, had the restrictions stayed the same. Maybe it's almost like a computation. I'd love your thoughts on this. Almost like a computation of like excess cases, excess deaths. In other words, here's what the curve would have looked like. And now here's what the curve looks like. And we're going to use each to count for heterogeneity. We're going to use each county as its own control. Isn't that the, the, the best we can do? That's the best we can do. Unfortunately, you're, you're, if you have to put it into a statistical context, you're looking for some sort of discontinuity in the, in the curve, Absolutely. right? Yep, so, exactly. And, and, and the problem with that is that we've been so poor at, at actually extrapolating those curves without t changes, disruptions, that how are we really going to get an, a, 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 an estimate that's powerful enough to detect something? I mean, this is one, if you do look back, if you, I recall in our first six to eight you know, weeks or 10, even months of our show, so much effort was, was placed on the projections. Do you remember right. all those models and there's, you know, the two weeks, the three weeks, the two months projection? 
now no one talks about it. it with Omicron, nobody even bothered because we basically demonstrated that we couldn't do we it. We can't do it, right. <laughs> and that therefore, you know, we just don't know. I no, mean, no, you're, you know, let me just interject for a second. What you're yeah. talking about is, by the way, I made, I made a casual comment. Like, all we'll yeah. do is we'll take yeah, the curves yeah. that we would have had, yeah. and they're like, right. whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, those things may have a massive standard error. So you brought up so many good points. I just want to, for our listeners, I just want to make sure everyone's, you know, following all these really sophisticated but subtle points that you've made. First, to do that counterfactual, we have to have a reasonably good forecasting model, which we don't. Second, even if we have a mean estimate, there's massive uncertainty around it, which means the likelihood we're going to find something significantly different goes down dramatically. And third, in some sense, um, it makes an assumption of some things being stationary, which when the policy changes, those things may change. So there's so many things. This may be the best we can do, but it's fraught with significant challenges. That's that was the point I wanted to raise. Absolutely. And 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 uh, and. But I have to say, you're starting to see in this country, if you ask me, we didn't actually begin with that question. You know, what do you see new in COVID? I would actually say I don't see too much new in the medical aspects or the data aspect. What I do see is an incredible shift in America in terms of restrictions. And that I mean, so one thing, you know, we have a bifurcated country and in uh, most of the country, there hasn't been restrictions in a long time. It's in the major metropolitan centers in the East and West Coast yep. that there continue to be extensive restrictions. Those have started to fall by the wayside quickly. We notice that even at Penn, we're not having uh, vaccine checks at the at the parade, uh, you know, the the, the the coffee shop at Wharton that used to be. If you wanted to sit, you had to have your vaccine check. That's gone. We can now eat anywhere in the in the university other than the classroom. Um, we and these are new things. Uh, mask mandates have disappeared from Philadelphia, New York City. And um, and Boston, these are the Boston in particular. This is a diehard in Washington, D.C. That doesn't mean individual businesses can still require. Yeah, we that still have a mask mandate for the classroom. Right. We, we do. It's up to it's up to individual schools and, 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 and entities. But the, the, the this has been an enormous change. And what I do think is interesting is the conversations that being had around those decisions and. One of the things that we as statisticians can bring to that is what is the relevant data to that you should be talking about and what do we know? So don't you still I, I, I like that question. I, it was something I was going to sort of transition to. But isn't it still bothering you? Well, it, it should bother you and me as humans just for, with compassion. Um, while the cases are now starting to come down, which is good, um, still 2000 people a day are dying. And that's now been, that's down somewhat, but it's still, obviously, I think we would both agree, like, that's not, I mean, that's not an acceptable number, uh, depending on how you want to term it acceptable. So how, are, how do you still see the problem of so many deaths? And in some sense, maybe, maybe a lot of these deaths aren't as preventable as we think. Maybe by getting rid of a lot of the restrictions, you know, it'll shorten the period by which um, it's a pandemic to an endemic, but how do you still feel like the, the lagging part, the part that we all care about is deaths are still extraordinarily high? You know, okay, there's two, two aspects of that. Yes, they are high. They're probably twice what they would normally be at this season um, instead of, well, we're talking about excess deaths, really. So we're, that's hard. I have to retract that statement. It's not, we're, they're not dying at twice the rate. That doesn't make sense. Um, 
in, in a normal flu season, we might have a thousand or so deaths. Per, just per, just to are clear for our listeners. Adi's given yeah. the number many times on the show before that 30 to 50,000 people in a typical flu season died. Let's be clear. They're not dying in August of flu. So you're commenting we're in yeah, February is, right now. Exactly, and so for those yeah. 12 to 16 weeks, there probably could be a thousand deaths um, maybe a um, week, a, a day. A, no, no, a day uh, countrywide um, uh, in this terrible time. No, if, if particularly if it's a bad flu season, flu, bad flu season is 100,000, um, 50, okay. 60,000 is, is OK. A, so it a, could be we maybe double the number of deaths of a bad flu season. Yeah. And so I actually so I actually did some research. Um, I went and looked state by state what the excess death is. Now, the CDC is a little late to that. It takes about six weeks for them to get the, the hard data. But up to the middle of January, even end of January, a place like Connecticut had no ex- excess deaths. I remember and, you saying that. Yep. And uh, in other words, and but if you look at it, we it's it. Nevertheless, the deaths are spiking because this is January, February. This is where flu season, and this is where outdoor viruses. I mean, and and one of the things about COVID is it's replaced or pushed aside a lot of the standard um, viruses that that, and that's typical typical that happens when you have one dominant kind of respiratory virus, it pushes the others aside. It's not that it's not additive. It's actually quite fortunate that it doesn't add. You don't get the flu plus the COVID. The flu just kind of gets pushed aside because it's not as transmissible. But so that that's the background here. But I think the decision has to do, and this is this is where we where we have to why the governments are doing these decisions. And particularly um, it's basically come to the understanding that that the preventions also cause damage. And that that damage is starting to become comparable to the death damages. And they're not born equally, but they're born in a very different way. And two years of telling performers that they can't work for a living and 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 you just go down the list. I, I mentioned right. that because my son is in that group. And while, you know, the elite rock bands are still touring and performing, that middle, that not even middle, that low starting out group has basically been unemployed for two, two months. They've got to be able to get back to work. People have to have to have to have to be able to earn a living to live safe, uh, to live, you know, freely. And we've also been tabulating, and this is another thing, tabulating the excess death due to the secondary right. characteristics. Depression, suicide, drug addiction. And, and we didn't do that the first year. Um, right. And we didn't estimate how much those were. And so I think those have, that when you do point out the 2000s and then finally, and this is the this is the kind of the, the, the moral element. At what point do we have to say, you know, it's you have the mechanism to avoid death um, at least to make the death probabilities to the level of the background things that you do all the time. It's called getting vaccinated. And if you fail to do so, at what point do we say, well, that's on you? Right. Yep. So this is, <laughs> yeah, no, a good point. So this is, this is, this is Wharton Moneyball. This is uh, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science, Eric Brado. I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. We're doing our podcast edition. Uh, for those of you, again, that want to join the conversation, you always can. You can tweet at us at WMoneyball, or you can send us an email at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. So Adi, I thought it would be a fun thing to do in the remainder of Q1. We'll maybe do this in a rapid fire, one minute kind of way. I've got a bunch of topics from one year ago in COVID. Um, I just like to, I'll read them and I'll just get your reaction to it. So, and this is literally just what we wrote in our rundown one year ago today. Uh, Sorry, it was February the 22nd. Today we're filming on the 21st, but it was a year ago. Okay. We wrote one dose gives 85 plus percent protection. Now, that was a different variant, whatever protection means, but just 
what's your reaction? One dose gives 85 plus percent protection. That's what we wrote a year ago. Yeah, well, I can tell you we have revised that. That 85% protection from infection. We had no idea what its prevention was, protection was from serious illness at that point. So one year ago, we had no knowledge to what the degree um, one dose would prevent you from, from serious illness. And actually, I would say today that we still, uh, we know that better, um, but we know we, going backwards, 81 dose or two doses, certainly one dose doesn't do a damn thing with, with respect to infection or subsequent variations. I think it does offer a little bit of protection from serious illnesses, but nothing like what two doses do. No, and, and I think as you pointed out, and we had the director of immunology at Penn last week on here, um, the, the vaccine was never really intended to protect against infection. That was just a bonus. And they all got, he even said, we got overconfident and happy about it. It was meant to prevent serious illness. Let's you talk know, about, it's, yeah, it's sorry, funny. I, I'll have to dig in with, with that a little bit more um, because, you know, I was thinking about that, but, but I think that it was supposed to in, in, in prevent infection better than it has. And, oh, no, no, and, for and, sure. And, and that, and so, yes, we, I think there's a two, two prongs to it. The miracle has been to the degree which it prevents serious illness. Absolutely. But it, the disappointment has been that to the degree that it hasn't protected from infection. I could not. I could not agree more. Okay, let's go to the second topic we talked about a year ago today. The New York Times published an article on the term that we don't hear as much anymore, but we heard it back then, herd immunity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, chuck it. <laughs> we don't hear about it because there isn't any. Um, and and that's that's the aspect which is where, where I don't feel is comparable to other vaccines because polio, smallpox, measles, they were defeated by herd immunity. Yep. Um, and that's and, and maybe that's because they just don't vary um, and they don't have variants. And so and that was the 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 aspect of this. I think we could have expected it because it's a it's a respiratory. It's a coronavirus. They do mutate. Those other viruses don't mutate and do not have a new variant of measles every year. So do you um, believe, so, we, we've never talked about this, certainly on the air, do you believe if we had only had one variant of COVID to start with, that we would potentially have a degree of herd immunity at this point? Absolutely. And I, but I do follow, see that we do have a certain amount of immunity um, because natural immunity has spread extremely well, widely. Yep. And that also, and particularly with conjunction with the vaccine, provides an enormous amount of benefit from serious, serious illness and, and death. And so while we don't have herd immunity to prevent infection, we do have a nice base of population uh, um, uh, immunity, natural immunity, and that really prevents it from kind of becoming an out-of-hand disease. But, you know, um, one of the issues with COVID, and this is, we'll see what, what, what happens in the future, Right now, when you test positive in any environment, we still react like it's like the, 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 the end of the world in, in terms of what we re require. So for example, if a teacher in a local school is exposed to someone without a mask for 15 minutes or more, who then determines that that person was infectious, that teacher, regardless of their symptoms, will have to quarantine for five days. Right. And, and that is a protection I believe will eventually drop. And the reason we'll eventually drop it, because we'll, we'll start to realize that the consequence of getting COVID, spreading it to a vaccinated wide, widely or what you would call herd immune population, is just not worth it. And also part of it cost. is because something we had talked about is because of the nature of this variant and possibly the likely future variants as mm -hmm. not being as severe. Let's talk about another topic was a year ago, we were very concerned about, you know, uh, 
there wasn't enough vaccine. Like, I, this is what we wrote. Current, <laughs> yeah, pace, no. current pace of vaccine suggests late summer, unless the pace increases. So where do we stand now? Isn't it vaccine oh. for everybody? You can just go to your corner and get everyone can oh get it God. at once. You know, there are, we haven't done enough to congratulate the victories. And the victories are several. And one of them, of course, is the miraculous invention of this MRI and uh, uh, vac- mRNA vaccine and its, and its production to the market as quickly as it did. And second, and its effective efficacy. And third, the ability to produce widely as many doses as it produced as fast as we have. By, I think it was by March, no, not March, by April, most April. of the country. April, pretty wanted. much everyone could get it. Yep. That's right. It was, it was a shit show until in February. And even in March, things were tough. But by April and certainly by May, everyone in this country was able to get it. And there's really enough doses for, you know, most of the world at this point. Well, let's I I was going to get to that. So where do you think we stand like for us to get as a as a world, as as the earth population of Earth as to get long term herd immunity? Do you think we need to have much higher vaccination rates in the rest of the world because if not another variant is coming and we know what's going to happen if another variant comes you know um shoot i I don't know (laughs) i I mean it's clear that that it it certainly mutates i think it can mutate in in an unvaccinated person it can mutate in a vaccinated person i don't think we know enough i'd be this would be something to 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 bring uh, bring an expert so maybe maybe one last topic from a year ago, which was you may remember a year ago we were all talking about the the magic letter that's used in infectious diseases, and also if you'd like somewhere in my home field of marketing, which is the multiplication rate, like the letter R, you know. And I wrote here uh, a year ago that only five states had an R greater than one. I haven't actually looked lately, but where do we stand in terms of just for our listeners, just to remember that means for every given person that gets COVID. How many people do they tend to infect? And of course, if R is less than one, you end up with an exponent. You end up with a death rate of the virus. If R is greater than one, you end up with an expansion of the virus. Have you seen any recent data that suggests whether it's state by state or an aggregate what the R right now is for COVID? Well, uh, you know, I don't know what it is right now because, but I have to say, we've stopped talking about it, which is that's why that's the other reason I'm bringing it up to you. Is this, yeah. this that was all we were talking about a year ago, and now I, we're really not talking about it? I, I think we don't talk about it because the only I think we've come to the understanding that to really jack it down requires the kinds of lockdowns and restrictions that we aren't doing anymore. And in fact, I would argue that. It really is only sort of Chinese style restrictions that can really have that that impact. Um, Although you could look at the successes of places like, say, Singapore and South Korea to um, Australia. Yeah, Australia has a little bit in both all both these countries have benefit. I mean, essentially, there's no in and out except through 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 certain gateways. Um, And uh, but and so that confounds the process. But we just don't talk about RT because I think our ability to to substantively change it. Um, is just not on the table. Well, you know, it's been great, Adi, talking about COVID with you this time. And it's also been great kind of revisiting both current topics and where we yeah. were uh, a year ago. It's fun just to see, and I'm sure a year from now, I'll have this list and I'll say, Adi, this is what we were talking about a year ago. So right. this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, statistics, sports, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend and collaborator, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics and Data Science. Some combination of us, Kate Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball Podcast Edition. And again, this is a show for all of you, the sports and analytics fans. And if you want to join the conversation, uh, it's easy to do. You can tweet at us at WMoneyball, or you can email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, and we'll answer your questions uh, here live on the podcast edition. So Adi, while the NFL season is over, um, I know that there's an aspect of the NFL that some of our listeners know a little bit about, but maybe not a ton about, um, but has become near and dear both personally to you because of the teams of students that you've supervised, but also professionally because um, it's a part of the Wharton Sports Analytics, Sports and Analytics Business Initiative, Wasabi, that you run here at Wharton. So could you tell our listeners here um, a little bit about the NFL Big Data Bowl? And could you also tell them about like what are how, you know, what did our teams this current year do? What was the problem that was addressed and what did our teams do? Okay, so the Big Data Bowl was a uh, competition created, imagined, and, and implemented by Michael Lopez, who is just a remarkable transformative figure in the NFL. So my, friend just, and I mean, friend in person that's been on the show many, many times. Yes, and, we've, and he's a great friend of ours. Uh, so Michael was a professor at Skidmore College of Statistics, had a blog, um, and had written articles on uh, academic articles on sports statistics, and had been a football player. And he, and, he, uh, and, he, and he left his tenure job as a professor to essentially run the NFL's kind of uh, research and development in statistics and, one, and data analysis. And, and NFL, unlike, say, baseball and even basketball, was a bit of a backwater. Um, there's lots of people thinking about analytics, but there really wasn't an integration into the sport like we saw in, say, baseball. And he had this idea to offer to make a competition and, 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 uh, and offer prize money to anyone, both students and postgraduate, to and you offer up a data set and a prompt, and the prompt would encourage people to um, analyze this data and submit to their competitions. A lot of the, the victors in those competitions have have now worked for the NFL and they've transformed analytics in the NFL. And it's absolutely remarkable as both the community and and the sport and an intellectual enterprise. So except Michael for Lopez the fact that except yeah. for the fact that um, in Kaggle, for those people that many of our listeners may know these Kaggle competitions, yeah. those are based purely typically on predictive uh, outcomes. That's right. Meaning whoever right. develops an, an algorithm that does out of sample prediction the best is the winner. In some sense, if you like, there is an objective. Winner. That's right. The so, NFL Big Data Bowl, if you could explain, is a little bit different. So the, he's, the, we've now had four um, competitions. So in the first season, um, the, the prompt uh, had to do with um, – it had to do with play – they gave you the data, and I think it really was somewhat open-ended. Um, they gave you the data from essentially snap to conclusion. Uh, this is tracking data, data that, that the public did not have. And it, was, and it was just, you know, tell us something interesting about the game. Our, our Wharton Moneyball enterprise, which is not only our show, uh, Wasabi, but also our, 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 summer, our research at the, and the summer programs, our community of students who have been working with me in, in, um, for several years at that time entered, and we had a winner. Um, this was Jack Soslow, Andrew Castle, and, two, and, and one other student um, at, from outside Wharton. They were one of the student winners, and, and Samir Deshpanda, our, our uh, PhD student, is now a professor of statistics, and Kathy Evans, who now leads uh, basketball research at the, at the Washington Wizards, 
We had two teams who won uh, won uh, that first competition. The next year was a Kaggle competition, and uh, uh, we right. didn't actually have an entrant entrant from Penn. And really, because it really favored the CS people who were very that experienced. predicting like the a running plays or something like that. Yeah, it was it was to predict. It was actually interesting. It was it, the, the competition was to predict the outcome of a running play from the time of the of the of the handoff. So not right. the time of the snap, but the time of the handoff. And the idea would be to create a benchmark to compare a, a particular running back or scheme or, or team's performance in the run compared to what you'd expect. So could you speak, Adi, just before you get to the next two, could you also speak to our listeners, what does it mean, and I know what you mean, but it's what does it mean to say that the computer science people would have an edge in pure prediction-like problems? Okay, because this is like a Kaggle competition tends to get set up in a, in a standardized way where you, where you take the data and you divide it into three. Uh, so one section of the data is given to the competitors. That's called training data. And then the rest of the data is remained hidden. But partial part of that data is allowed. You can you can probe your 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 answers against that what called test data. And then there's a final um, holdout sample called the validation set, which actually grades your competition. In real data, particularly data with time series, and football is very much a time series. Right. That component of the analysis and the competitive nature and the way to use the test and train and validation set favors people who are not only very skilled in, in, in data analysis, but skilled in data engineering, data management, and the skills that one acquires by participating routinely in Kaggle competitions. And so the NFL, the winner of that were people who had no knowledge of NFL. They were basically a professional Kaggle uh, competitor group. Right. Um, and they won, they won, actually, they won pretty handily. Um, the, the leading, they won by an amount that wasn't particularly close compared to those who came in second place and then distant. Um, but the thing that was disappointing to we on the sports analytics side, and I've made this clear in some of my tweets and, and our discussions with our students, is that the signal is really low. So it's very hard to get uh, an accurate estimate of what's going to happen on a run given the tracking and we haven't come really close to that in other words you give it to you give the ball to a to a to a running back three yards behind the line and that could be a 15 yard um, gain or it could be a three yard loss and while we have some information and there is you know there's the r squared there isn't zero it's not nearly as high as you'd really like it to be so maybe in just the next couple of minutes uh, and then we'll move on to other topics why don't you tell us so um what about the last two years? Ah, of course. Now, this is very, this is going to this dear to our heart and your heart. So we had, uh, we had one team who won last year, um, what we call uh, Zach, Sarah, and, and, and Ryan. One of those Zachs is Zach Bradlow, um, Zach Drapkin, Sarah Hugh, and, and Ryan uh, Gross. They were winners last year in the, in the student competition. And that was a spectacular success, our third success for the University of Pennsylvania. This year, we had another team of winner and another and another. So we had three winners this year and actually two. So the Zachs and Sarah returned and they were uh, they were winners and honorable mention in the student category with an excellent um, entry, by the way. And in the open category, we had two winners. Ryan Gross came back and contributed with with Ryan Brill, one of our PhD students in applied math is working with one of and two other students, including Joey Rudoller. Um, and they were winners in the in the open competition. And just to remind all of our listeners, last year was the evaluation of wide receivers, and this yes. year was the evaluation of punting. 
punting and kicking. So kick yeah, returning punting and, and punting, right? So, and, and both of them talked about, essentially both groups talked about strategy, but we actually had a new entrant uh, for, in the open division from the University of Pennsylvania. There was a surprise and unknown to all of us, although he has been participated in our, in our research community. That's Ian Barlett, who is, uh, who is a professor of biostatistics, a brand new assistant professor, submitted and was a winner. So maybe we'll get Ian to come on our, our show and talk about his entry. So let me just ask you just as, and then we'll move on to other topics. Um, uh, let me just interrupt. Does, we have yeah, six please. winners, six winners at the University of Pennsylvania. There isn't another school that comes close. So let's just point that out and have a little moment of bragging. No, no, no. It's it. Well, I mean, I have to be a little bit uh, neutral on this since my son was involved in a couple of them. But I, I, I will. I know you don't, but I, I will let you speak uh, on that behalf. Um, yeah. I, I will say the following. I think what what I reflect on as someone that's had a passion for sports analytics for since I was starting as a PhD student 30 plus years ago is that wow has sports analytics really arrived as a legitimate area of not just learning for students because it's a great vehicle to teach people statistics and data science but now and maybe you could speak to this as, as putting on your academic hat as a chair as a tenured professor which is of legitimate research scholarship which it just wasn't when you and i graduated from our phd people are like ah, oh, you work on these toy problems so maybe you could just talk briefly about that as well yeah i mean it's it certainly has been a sea change but listen first of all we're no longer statistics we're all statistics and data science and Big a lot difference. of the a lot of the sports data is really data science and contributes in that way the places where sports were were considered legitimate interests 20 years ago were when they could be reflective of a larger statistical problem or a good point or a kind of a economic problem or psychological problem. So you take about take uh, yeah, like uh, the Wilmer's, hot hand. Some work I've done with former PhD, the hot hand effect. Well, people get hot in right. sports. Well, that's a psychological phenomenon. That's right, a psychological phenomenon. You have Romer's paper on the draft, right? Uh, uh, no, not the draft, uh, but Cade's paper on the draft. Cade, that's a, yeah. That's a business problem or psychological problem having to do with evaluation and proper overvaluation and 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 thinking the thing you have is worth more than than you could get and the trading and those are there's like management problems and psychology buried there. But I'm, when I when I remember Rome, Romer's fourth down decision making paper that had to do with studying corporations or businesses. It was an economic theory paper. Um, so what's really changed? Oh, we can go back to the 1970s. That famous paper um, by Efron and Morris talking about. Uh, um, shrinkage estimation shrinkage in baseball. Estimate. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't really about baseball. It was really about James Just, Stein just so people know, right? the first talk, just, just to interject for a second, the first talk I ever heard as an undergraduate uh, was by one of our, well, he's emeritus, but one of our colleagues, Ed George, where he was talking about shrinkage estimation. And I remember the examples he used in his talk was from Efron and Morris. Morris was Carl Morris, one of my advisors as a doctoral student, where, you know, just for all our listeners, you know, let's say next year we've got Aaron Judge is 20 for 50 after 50 at bat. So he's batting 400. And people would say, you know, in statistics terms, the maximum likelihood estimator of his batting average is 400. That's my point prediction. Well, no one's batted 400 since Ted Williams in 1946. So I'm going to have to shrink 20 out of 50 back to the league average. And now the question is, how much do you shrink? How do you determine that? So that that became, in some sense, that one paper, I'm glad you mentioned it, almost put, you know, 
sports statistics on the map as at, at worst a legitimate area to apply these general statistical methods. you know i feel like a, a little bit of a relic but um, we mentioned you mentioned morris you know morris from harvard uh, efron was at stanford but efron's college roommate was a super famous researcher named tom cover who you probably have heard of I, well um, I, I knew him well because one of my advisors as a doctoral student was uh Hal Stern, who is uh, Tom Cover, was his advisor. So I know, right. and of course, of course, Tom Cover did a lot of work and stuff that we study, which is ELO methods, paired comparison methods, all right, of that. Right. And 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 you would know him, of course, from your Stanford days. But I'm saying, oh, I mean, Tom Cover was one of the people that was one of the big giants who actually studied these types of problems. And of course, one person at my graduate student was Fred Mosteller. Mosteller and Tukey wrote all kinds of paper on golf and pulling the goalie and all kinds of topics like that. Wonderful. But the, at, at those times, so, so the reason I brought up Cover is Cover wrote a paper in the 1970s with, with someone named King, this famous paper, Cover and King, called Offensive Earned Run Average. And it was, an, it was essentially one of the earliest serious formal analytical papers designed to measure the value of a, of a, ba- of a, of a batter using advanced analytical techniques and simulations and lots of mathematics. But it was buried. I mean, Cover would never talk about that. It was just not considered part of his, you know, giant oeuvre of enormously influenced and important work. Yet, if you look back, a paper publishing that today would be a highly regarded paper, and you could publish it in a top journal in statistics. That's well, that's the change. Well, I will take this formal opportunity on Morton Moneyball to thank you for all of the work that you're doing with our students. And also just to make our listeners aware, I hope when next year's NFL Data Bowl comes around, um, it's a great way the uh, NFL and Michael Lopez have democratized data and competition. And uh, people from large schools, small schools, et cetera, are all competing. There's a student division, open division. This is the way you learn data science. And the NFL is also smart because they not only learn stuff, but it's a great recruiting tool. There's all kinds of good things that come from the NFL Big Data Bowl. Um, Let's stay with the NFL just for literally 60 seconds here. Um, Next week is the NFL Combine. And I think you guys know, um, I will literally be watching almost every minute of the NFL Combine. You guys ridicule me. Have you ridiculed me every year for watching this? Watching this? (laughs) Not me. I I don't do that. No, no, no. no. But let me ask you. I mean, suppose you're someone here that's saying, what, what extra predictive power is there in the NFL Combine data? Or like, why do I find it so interesting? I find it interesting because you can't teach speed and guys that are fast change the NFL. Am I still wrong after these eight years thinking that at worst, just a uniform way to measure speed is valuable for predicting success of certain positions, certainly in the NFL? You know, I think this is a hard concept. I think I agree that it probably matters. And and but the problem is, is that it's we don't run an experiment on it. So right. it would be it would be fun to have a, an experiment where one year half the members of the draft don't go and the other and the others do. And then you can see what the impact of the draft is on. Uh, on the, sorry, the, the, the combine is on future. performance. That could come. Well, let me just say in the world of going back to our Q1 in the world of covid. Yeah. And there's also this kind of, it's not going to affect, I don't think it's going to affect the athletes, but there's an agent potential boycott going on next week of the combine because of different rules around COVID protection and everything else like that. I was almost hoping, Adi, the article I read this morning was going to tell me that half the players weren't going to go for exactly the reason you said. Now, that would have been great. Yeah, because so what, what we do notice that there is a predictive component to it, particularly at the extreme. So those 
you know, the, those who are really slow, they tend to disappear from having future NFL careers. Those who are really fast, you know, relative to your position, uh, they tend to have slightly better careers. But there isn't much predictive power in it because obviously no one value in the combine is that particularly important. Um, but it also is a little bit self-fulfilling. So if you do, you know, are, if you are the champion in the, in the 40, um, you're going to get, you're going to do better. You're going to get, you're going to get draft higher. And we know that if you're drafted higher, well, that causes us an interesting bias right there. turns out there's a first round draft bias. So right. if I know that you're in the first down and I know your, your performance, um, the fact that you're in the first round leads you to have a better career than someone who had exactly the same performance in the second round because of that bias. And that of course is tacked onto the combine. So, but also I think you really, you watch it. I have to know you can say that because it's just fun. Right, to watch fun. these super skilled competitors do a contest. You know, the problem with, with football, unlike, say, baseball, we don't have the ability to head-to-head compare um, our, the athletes in something that you can measure, you know, definitively. You know, so when, you know, right. when Tom Brady gets all these touchdowns, well, it's because he had a great coach or a great line, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and when a wide receiver gets lots of patches, well, they have a great quarterback or, or whatever it is. But in, 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 uh, in the combine, it's just you and the club. You know what I also find? <laughs> you know what I also find fun? And then we'll move to baseball, which is a topic I know you're going to want to talk about. Let me also say one of the things I love doing in the combine, I don't know why I enjoy this. Like, I'll watch a guy run, and before I see the time, I'm like, that's a 4 4. That's a 4 6. Like, can I just use the eyeball test and say, that's how fast the person. I like to test my own predictive powers on how fast the person has actually run. It's just fun for me. So let's yeah. talk about something that's painful for you and me, which is the lockout that's happening in baseball right now. Um, the fact that they just announced spring training is delayed, so it won't start until uh, no sooner than I think it's March 5th, something like that. There'll be a shorter spring training likely this year because they're, I mean, if they can help it, they don't want to push back the start of the regular season. They'd love to play all 162 games. I was going to ask you, do you, do we have any data? Because we have had lockouts before. Would a shorter spring training, in your view, would it help pitchers more or batters more, or we just don't know? Like, if it's a shorter spring training, if the regular season starts, and let's say it's a three-week spring training, it's other normal five to six weeks, are we going to see offense start really fast in the MLB, or are we going to see pitching start really fast in the MLB? All right, well, you know, I can make two arguments, uh, and one on each side, so here we go. Let's hear them. Um, I'll, I'll start off with the argument that it should hurt pitchers, because frankly, it's a, just a harder thing to get get ready to do, and it requires competition in order to prepare for it, just to get in physical condition to throw. Um, you know, they unless they're you know, arms need rest, and they also need time to build up. So that would be my reason to say the pitchers are going to. But be just armed. quickly, what would stop similar to what football teams do in the offseason? Look, when Brady signed with Tampa Bay, he set up an right. informal session. What would stop? I'm making this up since we're both Yankee guys. What would stop the Yankees starting pitchers and catchers from saying, look, let's just meet over here at some field. It's still 60 feet, six inches here. It's still a regular. You don't need to go into Yankee Stadium to do it. It's a baseball diamond. Let's do and let's, you know, let's use last year's workout routine and let's just start now. Well, okay, so the ones who are well off financially can easily pull that off. But surprisingly, large numbers of baseball players are just trying to make ends meet. And I'm not sure they have the ability to just do that, uh, although many of them will. And so that's a counter argument to that arg- to the argument that I made. Um, one, one of the general arguments that have been, been, been I've been reading this, this is that the hitters need to face live pitching in order to really get their timing back. 
actual live pitting, pitching and kind of game. Not out of a, a machine yeah. that can throw 95 as well. Yeah, it turns out the machines, I mean, the machines are just not the same. I mean, so much of, of hitting is watching the motion and, and, and detecting and, and estimating and guessing what, what is going to be coming at you and where and at what speed and what, what curvature. And that just, the machines just can't do that. In fact, if I had to say the one reason why pitching has gotten so far ahead of hitting in, in the last few years is that the pitchers have the ability to take feedback from the analytics, from the coaching staff, and immediately incorporate it and see the results. Yet a hitter has to go much, much slower because of the fact they just don't see enough live competition. I would also imagine that part of that is, maybe this isn't true, I would imagine there's greater variation in release points, spin, etc. from the pitching side than there is from the batting side. Like, at least let me say the following. There's obviously all kinds of different batting stances. But when the ball comes through, the when the bat comes through the hitting zone, there has to be a certain degree of uniformity there. So I would imagine that pitcher, there's it's harder for a batter because there's so many different styles of pitchers that they're going to face. And from Absolutely. everything, release points, spin, different pitches. It's a, well, what one person calls a fastball can be different, different speeds, can be all kinds of variation, I would imagine, as well. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, I'm hoping that uh, we have a major league season uh, and that it's starting real soon. Um, let me bring up one last topic uh, in the last few minutes we have of Q2 here. And again, this is Professor Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Data Science here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Kate Massey and Shane, Shane Jensen, are here every week here on the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball. Um, just one quick thing I wanted to go with you in the next last two minutes or three minutes or so. I looked at the at the NBA and I looked at the preseason odds to win the championship, and now the current odds as of the All-Star break. I want to point out a few interesting teams and just get your reaction. So the team with the best record in the NBA, the best record by seven games in the loss column is the Phoenix Suns. Now, of course, Chris Paul, unfortunately, just fractured his thumb. He's going to be out seven or eight weeks, which is really bad. But they went from plus 1,500 to plus 425. Now, that's a huge shift. Any reaction? Or, and do you think we're overvaluing the regular season? Like, who cares? I mean, they did make the NBA Finals last year, let's remember. They lost to the Milwaukee Bucks in the Finals. But any reaction to the Suns essentially quadrupling their odds? Well, let me ask you a question. Um, what changed? I, it's a good question. I think they've overperformed compared to what people thought they would do. I think Chris Paul has had an exceptional season for, I think it's the 17th or 16th year in the NBA. I think people were expecting Phoenix to be very good, but I think they were expecting other teams in the West maybe to be a lot better. Like, I don't think Utah's quite as good as people thought. I don't think Denver's quite as good as people thought. I think Memphis has been a surprise to people, but I think most people don't think of the, and and of course, here's the big one, Adi. The Lakers on the flip side, the Lakers were plus 300 to start the season. This is, you know, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook. Well, Russell Westbrook looks like he should retire. Anthony Davis has been injured half the season. LeBron has been great. They've gone from plus 300 to plus 3,000. So, no, so that's, where, that's where the probability has disappeared. I mean, plus 300 is one in four. This is, right. And, and that, that's amazing. And, and That's 25%. And, so you're pointing out that to go to plus yeah. 3,000, which is like 3%, that 22% has to go somewhere. Yes. And essentially what's happened is the Suns have eaten it. 
And, and it's just been an exchange. So my question is, is the assessment of the Lakers appropriate? So will Anthony Davis come back? He will. The... He's back. He's back now. Okay. So, and so, and although he's injured is... again, I think, I think he's now uh, injured yeah. again. I think he came back and he's injured again. And, and yes. So that's really the question. Russell Westbrook doesn't, I mean, will they trade? Will they, Russell but Westbrook the trade deadline's over. You can't trade him no. now. No, so no. Can a, so can a team consisting of a, of a, Half Anthony Davis and and LeBron James win there, and most people think just no way. I, I, yeah, I think I think the answer is probably no for a couple of reasons. I also think, by the way, the other team that is better than people thought they were, the second best team in the West and in the NBA, by the way, is the Golden State Warriors. They've gone from plus one thousand to plus four eighty. Nobody knew if uh, Clay Thompson was going to come back. Well, he's come back and he looks really good, and the Warriors look really good so i think you yeah. made a great point i think the probability literally has shifted from the lakers to the other top two teams in the west which are phoenix and golden state and everyone else has pretty much uh, stayed the same so that's been the first half of wharton moneyball uh we still have two quarters to go in q3 we have other sports topics in q4 we're going to talk to a guest so please stay with us and join us right after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio Welcome back. Welcome back to Q3 of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide here on Sirius XM, the podcast edition. You can listen to our show on Sirius XM 132 uh, and replayed uh, live. Well, its first showing is on Wednesday mornings from 8 to 10, and then it's replayed throughout the week. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, uh, Professor of Mar- uh, Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner. Uh, some combination of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. So Adi, one of the topics that has led to um, a lot of discussion and debate, and a lot of it really is about a a very well-known statistical problem called equating, which, you know, when I worked at the Educational Testing Service, how do you equate people that have took one test with another test? How do you equate people with one set of training versus another set of training? The general problem of statistical equating has been around for a very long time. And this has kind of reared itself in the world of college athletics, and especially you know, near and dear to our heart, because it's a University of Pennsylvania athlete that has brought this to the forefront, uh, transgender athlete Leah Thomas, which is how to kind of calibrate you know, someone that was genetically or originally a man who's now transgender, who's now a woman, who's competing as a woman, which I'll give my own personal opinion, more than fair and reasonable to do. But of course, you want things to be equated properly. So I know, forget the political side of it. I know you've actually done research on this. So I wanted to give you first a few minutes just to tell us, like, what do we know about this? Not, It's not about I like this. I don't like this. I'm for this. I'm against it because we're a data and science oriented show. So what do we know? So I'll turn the floor over to you, Adi Weiner. So, so let's just, I'm going to back up, like really back up. Um, yeah, please. To, 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 and we can and even continue our conversation about, say, the combine. One of the reasons why the combine is so much fun is it's just fun to watch these unbelievably talented competitors, which we watch in football, just go head to head. And so think about that, the original competitions that, that drove the Olympics 2000 years ago running. And in fact, what is the most premier event in the world? Athleticism, it's got to be the 100 yard dash, right? Or the 100 meter for dash. For sure, 100 meter and dash, it, for sure. Who would announce the, the world's greatest, uh, you know, Usain Bolt, the fastest human probably has ever lived. So we've been having these competitions since time immemorial. 
And they featured only men because if you want to know who's going to be the best at running 100 yards, it's 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 it, at, at the world level and, and even lower, it's going to be men. So around the 20th century, mid 20th century, even late 20th century or, or earlier, we decided that this is not right to half the half the society, that there wouldn't be high level athletic competitions available to them, that they couldn't get college scholarships and they wouldn't have the resources to a, an incredibly useful social good, which is called athleticism, which you, you and I agree is, is fundamentally valuable to society and, and for the individual participants. So we created this protected class, uh, women's competition, because we knew that if they were, if there was only one division called the open division, sure, maybe at the middle school level, elementary school level, even to the high school level, you might find a smattering of, uh, of girls and women competing against the boys and men. But at the high level, it would be we all, all entirely men because the not only in gestation, but in puberty, men uh, just get enormous physical advantages from upper body size to bone density to height, obviously to, I mean, there, there is a, probably at least a dozen uh, of, um, advantages that men have compared to women. Let me just women. state, one of my favorite papers that a colleague of mine when I worked at ETS uh, uh, worked on was uh, he studied um, Olympic athletics and he actually compared men and women in the following sense, like if I took the men, like if I took the woman's world record today in the 100 meter dash, that would be the man of 19, I'm making it up, 65. Right, 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 yeah, it was yeah. actually, no, no, it was time curves comparing mm-hmm. women to men. And what's actually interesting based on what you also said is those gaps are shrinking. They're not going to, there's no model that you would build that's they're going to go to zero, but it is that was one of the most fascinating papers I read that one way to think of equating, I know that's not what we're going to talk about today is how many years ago would I have had to have a, you know, if I had a woman go back in time and compete against the optimal man, what, how many years back would you have to go? And how does that vary by sport to where the woman would be competitive in an open competition? So one of the things that, that, yeah, that's a, it's fascinating, but these are, these are curves are like logarithmic curves. So they Correct. go very quickly in the beginning and then they, they Absolutely. tail off. Um, but one thing I looked at recently is that Mark Spitz records um, wouldn't even be NCAA qualifying in the sprints t- today, but there isn't a woman who's, who's, who's faster than Mark Spitz. You may even remember this, actually, yeah. this is, this is going to relate very much to what we're going to talk about today. You probably don't, you maybe as a swimming person, you do remember this about five years ago. Mark Spitz competed against Michael Phelps. Mm. <laughs> they gave, but let's be clear. Yeah. They gave Mark Spitz a time advantage based on his age. Mm-hmm. And, and now let me say, Michael Phelps still won the race, but it was there. And this is, was the way I view from, again, not from a political perspective. I've already given my own personal perspective on Leah Thomas and transgender athletes. I'm all for it. Um, but they gave Mark Spitz a time advantage to try to equate the two distributions based on age, his performance, et cetera, to that of Michael Phelps. So I don't know if you remember that, but it was actually I, I one of the great athletic. I, I was so intrigued. Could they, could they, and this is related yeah. to something I know you're going to talk about. Could they even come up with a reasonable time? Like if they give Mark, Mark Spitz 10 seconds, of course he's going to win. If they give him two seconds. Of course he's going to lose. How do you, how did they even think about what would be a equitable amount of time? Well, it's, it's so there's there's a there's approximate percentage differences, and there's also sort of ranking um, kind of uh, arguments that you can make. So where would the number one be uh, female swimmer be on the male in the male, and try to do some sort of modeling with that. 
But the thing is, is that there is, I mean, let's just actually think about what the actual issue is. So approximately, um, you know, a certain number of years ago, every sport was sort of asked, like, what, what should they do? Um, and they took their, their leads from uh, differences in sexual um, de um, uh, development, what's called DSDs, which were centered around testosterone. So there's a certain percentage of, of, uh, of people, babies, that are born with these DSDs, and which means basically typically means that you don't process the hormones properly. And mm -hmm. so Castor Semenya is a, is a classical example. She was the track uh, star from the Olympics who was banned and not banned and flipped back and forth between what her, uh, what, 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 whether she was being allowed to compete or not. And so much of that discussion had to do with naturally occurring, but testosterone levels, um, because developmentally or actually reproductively, um, uh, Castor Semenya is male, um, has testes, makes sperm. But if you look at sec uh, secondary sexual characteristics, She's female and has been since born, since birth. And she was told that she couldn't compete because her testosterone levels, while not in the male range, are way higher than the female range. And so there was so much focus on lowering testosterone levels. So let's just be clear. I just want to be clear for our listeners here. Adi's not making a political statement here. He's making a factual statement on if you're going to do a form of equating, you yes. have to choose some sort of objectively measurable criterion someone's testosterone level can be measured. Obviously, there's error in any measurement system. You're just pointing out that of all the ways they could have tried to do it, you're not, maybe it's a criticism, maybe it's not. Testosterone, at least in swimming, that has been the metric by which they've tried to do the equating. Exactly. And they've done that precisely because it's measurable. And it also seems to segue into things that we knew at the time. Um, so the rule had been in the NCA, and the NCA had declared that they would go by whatever the swimming or, or with each sport's organizational decision was. And that should change potentially by sport because the physical characteristics change by sport. So the rule had been in swimming that one year of testosterone suppression was enough to allow someone to switch from the male to the female category. By the way, switch to the reversal doesn't require anything. Um, you want it, you, if a female wants to compete against the men, they can do so. Um, although it, and that, by the way, is a little something could be a little controversy because if a, a someone transitioning might be taking testosterone, which which is an, a steroid, we don't allow men to take testosterone. But for the most part, it, it, that 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 uh, transition has not been um, as concerning. So uh, that was the rule in place, and and a one year of transitioning was the rule. Midway through this season, in response to our own Leah Thomas at Penn, the United uh, Swimming changed their criteria. They switched it to th basically three years of testosterone suppression. I thought it was two. One. Has it? It's three. Thirty-six okay. months. Thirty-six okay, months. Three years. Three okay. years. And and the NCAA responded by saying we're not changing, which of course makes a, a contradicts their earlier um, decision to just say follow whatever the rule was. And maybe that has to do with midseason or, or or issues of legality. But whatever it was, that was a shift. And the NCAA and the University of Pennsylvania essentially threatened to to sue the uh, NCAA if they if they switched midseason. And so that's where it took it. That's where we are now. Um, and so Leah is competing. Now, what's interesting about it is that we have one of the reasons why the shift is we know an enormous amount more than we used to know about the effects of, of transitioning and what makes men uh, on average and in extremes, much, much more, um, much stronger and, and faster. And it's not just testosterone, the effects of testosterone, you just can't be reversed as even re uh, at all and, and as quickly as originally thought. So, and you can see that in Leah's performance. Again, this, isn't, this is just straight observation. 
Leah, when 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 Leah was perform was competing in the men's division, was a distant swimmer. And we actually had a conversation about this last week about why you actually have in say sports like swimming and track three different tiers. And Shane Shane's not here to, to defend himself, but he can't stand it because he feels like there's too much medals. I think in he track agrees in swimming. swimming. I think he agrees in right. swimming that there should be let's call it two hundred meters and below two hundred to eight hundred and above eight hundred. I think he would even agree in swimming okay. that there's three. Divisions. So it's excellent you brought those up because basically there's three divisions. Uh, two hundred is the dividing line to the sprint, and eight hundred four and eight hundred is the middle, and then there's distance. So uh, Katie Ledecky is an 800, 400, 1650, you know, long distance, and she's the best at it. Who um, also happens to be, I think I talked about this last week, it's remarkable how many races she's won, 200 and below two. But that's, yeah, 200, that's only... but, she doesn't, but she doesn't do that at an elite level. It's, it's, it's not, she does not compete right. it to 200, um, and that's already middle, and she certainly doesn't do 50 and 100. But if you look at, say, Caleb Dressel, the world record, the fastest swimmer alive probably ever, this is a, this he, he he competes fifty and hundred freestyle and fifty and hundred well not fifty but hundred um, uh, uh, butterfly those are the sprinter races he doesn't even buy, he doesn't do two hundred although I'm sure he'd be pretty good at it he doesn't do two hundred and he certainly doesn't do five hundred or eight hundred or longer so now go back to Leah Thomas Leah Thomas when when Leah was was competing in the men's division was a top Ivy League distant sprinter. And not even, and not even. I mean, maybe thirty or fifty nationally in the NCAA in the distance as as, as swimming in male. Very, very, very good at the Ivy level, level. Decent, but sort of meh-ish nationally. But distance only did not swim anything else in the national. Sorry, in the Ivy League championships that just took place over the weekend. And while we're talking about it at Harvard, Leah Thomas won the um, the the uh, five hundred, um, the two hundred, and the one hundred swimming in each of the three categories and winning all three of them. That is transformative because it never in the history of competition at that level has someone won all three lengths, sprinting, middle, and length, and so, long distance. Yeah, so let's now talk about this from just also, I, not that we're going to move away from her specific situation, but let's talk about this. So how do we how do you think more broadly the NCA is going to think about the issues of calibration more more broadly um do you think there will be um like where do you think this is not again the political aspects from it but everybody wants i mean people that are uh male athletes transgender athletes female athletes etc everybody wants fair competition everybody wants that how do you think we're going to get that from a purely learning perspective from a data science perspective from a learning perspective how are we going to get there well i mean so i, I think fundamentally it's interesting because the fact that leah thomas won in each of the three distance lengths the, the one that we just discussed yeah i, I think is in, in my view has demonstrated that this is this current system is broken because you really shouldn't have an. I mean, Katie Lecky can't win in, in three legs. Let, let's be clear. Uh, let's Dressel be, can't win a three. Let's be clear. Uh, I just, again, I know it's a touchy subject for lots of people. No one's suggesting that transgender athletes competing is a broken system. I'm not suggesting that, and I don't think Adi's suggesting that. I think what you're suggesting is that there's data that has now evidence out there that suggests that using purely testosterone levels and possibly, in this case, a shortish period than maybe we would both like to have that that is not yet there in terms of equating athletes. 
That's right. So the current system has led to what we could statistically would call an unheard of anomaly uh, at the at a level of a highest level competition, Ivy League. Not the highest level, nothing against the Ivy League performers, but still pretty high. But you have to recognize that Leah Thomas's times put her in the absolute top NCAA field at each of these distances and will be competing nationally and right there at the top at each of these the sprint, the middle and the, and the long distance. And that has never been done before. By the way, and it's not that different. Contemplated. It's yeah. actually very interesting. When you just said this kind of statistical anomaly, it reminded me of the paper that we wrote a number of years ago on Roger Clemens, which right. is yep. just when we looked at his career pattern and we compared him to other elite players that had played a significant amount of time, his pattern just looked different. It just was an anomaly. Like That's there, right. there was no one whose career trajectory had this kind of double hump shape, as you remember. And yeah, I remember just, well. Right? No, no, I know you remember it well. Yeah, and yeah. You're, just, you're just pointing out that um, the, in some sense, the metrics currently being used and the measurement system that's doing its, I don't want to say doing its best, but trying as best as it can, maybe, to equate people. There's evidence now that suggests that that equating is not yet is not there yet because there's no athlete really that can compete in all three levels. Even the top of the top level people that are Olympic medalists can't really do it. I think that's not your point the, from an equating perspective. That's right. Not at the highest level. So not at yes, the highest you can, level. You, you can have some, you know, Caleb Dressel, I'm sure, would win at the Ivy League at the 500. Oh, <laughs> but, oh, sure. but he's not going to win nationally at the high 500 because he's not trained for that. But if you look at what Leah Thomas did at a meet against Dartmouth, swam 52 and a half, that may mean nothing to you, but that's full five seconds more than what she swam at the, at the Ivy Championships. That's almost 10% improvement in a matter of months. Um, and that basically means that a distance swimmer like Leah Thomas, 500, 1650, um, decided given the, the absolute advantages she has size wise over six feet tall, upper body strength that, that, that is carried over from when she was uh, competing with the, with the men. That means she can move towards swimming 100 and, and just dominate, although uh, and, and probably won't win nationally. But who knows? Um, but it certainly has national level. Um, uh, uh, times in the sprints, which is a category which 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 she never was was exceptional at at all, because you have to choose. Typically, when you're in in swimming or, or track, you have to choose, choose where you're going to train. So um, ultimately, we're going to see some change. I think. Uh, who knows? You know, when I talked about this with Kate a, a couple of weeks back, he asked me what what he, what I predict, and my answer is I can't predict the future. Right. <laughs> that's, that's no, no, but possible. I think you you can predict, yeah. and this is what we do as statisticians. We will learn a better equating system for transgender athletes, and uh, we will learn how to better equate things. And these are known statistical problems. And yeah, I mean, there's going to be a period by which um, things that we may see some of these statistical anomalies, but I think you and I both agree um, they won't last forever because measurement will become better. Also, because because of the importance of this topic, I think what you'll see is you'll see financial investment in better measurement systems. And that's the way business, this is the business part of our show. If, if it's an important societal issue and there's technology and measurement that can solve that issue, someone's going to invent something that's going to allow for better measurement. That's my hope of what happens going forward. Well, I mean, I think I think what I think they're probably going to end up uh, attaching the 
the discussion around testosterone, around some, something that you can measure. Uh, maybe there'll be other things, but I would, get, I would guess, if I had to guess with limited forecasting ability, yep. that by next season, um, the USA swimming rule will probably have been adopted by the NCAA for, at the start of the season, which yep. means that you'd have to have three full years of transitioning, which basically, basically means that unless you took years off of your college experience to delay it, uh, um, you, it won't be something, it'll still be uh, something of, 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 of national interest, but it might be less of an interest at the collegiate level. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of the things about this is that if you look back historically, when, when transitioned athletes started to compete, um, the general thought was there were so few of them and they weren't particularly good. And so you didn't really have any disruption in the natural, uh, the historical um, orientation of the games. But what's happened recently is that you're now starting to get competitors like Leah Thomas, who was a top five swimmer, um, not nationally, but certainly in the Ivy League, uh, in the male competition. And that means that that gap, that 10% approximately or 8% gap is um, sufficiently, you're up in that super upper edge sure. so that when you do um, make the transition, you're still above what, what the highest uh, uh, women were performing before you made that transition. So it's, this has made it very hard to assess. And we'll see, we're going to, we're going to be watching this over the next couple of years for sure. Well, what's wonderful for me is that it's a topic again, that I'll, again, I, people can have their own views. I'm happy to put them out there. I'm personally supportive of this. And it also intrigues me from a statistical perspective. So for me, it's a win-win. It's, it's a win because I, I believe transgender athletes have the right to compete um, as well. And I also just also think um, it creates an interesting statistical measurement and equating problem, which, again, I'm going back to my days where I worked at ETS. We worried about these issues quite a bit, different forms of the same test, uh, testing people in different parts of the country, different test items that had to be equated based on people's gender. You know, uh, certain topics are more, you know, people of certain genders or races tend to read certain books versus others. So what happens when you create reading passages? If I had a dollar for every minute we spent at ETS trying to equate test forms and make sure test items had equal measurement properties across different populations, it, it it's... I like those kinds of statistical problems. It's just interesting yeah, to me. There, there's also other ones that are sort of fascinating about the properties of the tail distributions of the normal curve. Um, there's so much that we can, we as statisticians can offer. I mean, one of the classic examples is, you know, a, a, this is often described if, if men have such an advantage, then why do so many women beat men in, in, on average in, in athletic competitions? And that's because small differences in the mean, um, which right. they aren't that great. Um, uh, means that if you randomly a pick point. a swimmer in high school from the female side, she's got a 50, you know, not a 50% chance, but a 30% chance of beating the randomly chosen male. But at the extremes, that's where that small difference in mean becomes quite exaggerated. And that, 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 that enters into the conversation. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that, um, It'll be very interesting also to see if there ends up being, you also talked about a measurement system, you know, like for many sports, there's like an ELO rating system. It made me think uh, just to move away a little bit from the topic, but just in the last couple of minutes that we have, like um, there was a recent statement by Novak Djokovic, who it could be related to our first uh, quarter of the show. We talked about COVID. Obviously he's not vaccinated. Um, it could re re relate to, um, our second part of the show about age curves and all of that, Novak says, I'm at the top and peak of my game right now. Well, the problem is, is that the data refutes that on every level. 
Um, he was, according to uh, an ELO model, he was at his peak in 2016, um, which, by the way, we're, we're, that's six years later. He's 34 years old. It does not surprise me that as a tennis player, he's not at his peak at age 34. But I think what you're bringing up, Adi, is that could we end up with, and, and maybe there is this already, that maybe the other challenge is, is that the, the, just the times that people are swimming or the, you know, there, there might be better ways for us to create systems based on head-to-head competition or other things. Maybe it's not just the science of it, but maybe we need better measurement tools to compare people of different populations. Well, all this will evolve over time, and we look forward to participating in the conversation, which is why it was such a great uh, to be able to talk with you about it today. Well, it's been great. So this has been uh, Q3 of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, and if you stay with us and join us after the break, we're going to have uh, Rick Maki, who's going to tell us about his world it, work in the world of tennis, which has been enormous on many dimensions. So please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball Q4 the show where sports statistics and business, my three favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics and data science here at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, Kate Massey, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. As all of our listeners know, uh, Q4 is our favorite segment of the show. It's where you don't get to hear us academics just talk about sports and analytics. You get to hear from experts themselves and this quarter is no exception. I'm, be, I'm honored to be joined by Rick Macy. Rick has over 40 years of experience working in the tennis industry, having trained and worked with the who's who's of tennis. I'll name just a few. Uh, and Rick can test me on my knowledge of tennis because I, I promised him off the air that I was a real knowledgeable tennis guy. So we have Serena Williams, the 23-time Grand Slam champion. Venus you Williams. I've got that one. Uh, Venus Williams, the seven-time Grand Slam champion. You got it. Andy Roddick, one of my favorites, just the one-time Grand Slam champion, but played in a very difficult era. Very this, difficult. Very difficult. This one, a lot of people don't know, but uh, the, a career Grand Slam winner, Maria Sharapova, won all four majors. I believe she has five majors, Maria Sharapova. Yes, she does. Uh, Jennifer Capriati had two, three majors, I believe, but in two different eras, if you'd like. Is that right? Yeah, and she got a gold medal in the summer, so uh, she that did counts. a lot, and people kind of don't remember that. That counts a lot, too. And Mary Pierce, if I've got it correct, the 2000 French Open. You got it. So there's just showing a little of my knowledge to our listeners here about tennis. And, of course, Rick is also the seven-time United States Professional Tennis Association Coach of the Year. Rick, welcome to Morton Moneyball. Ah, glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, that's always the goal, is having fun and being informative to our listeners. So let me start with the beginning, just some kind of overall questions. So, you know, um, I started watching tennis in the era of Borg, Connors, McEnroe, you know, later Lendl joined the crowd, you know, even the end, if you'd like a little bit of Nastasi and all of that. And of course, I'm still watching. In fact, I was watching tennis today and I watched a little bit of the uh, Djokovic-Museli match. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all the way from 1972 to 2022. <laughs> Could you talk we're, about how we're going tennis... way back down memory lane? I like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've always been a huge tennis fan. Uh, even if my game is mediocre, I like watching tennis. Um, <laughs> so could you talk about how tennis in your mind has changed during your time in the game? Yeah. Well, first off, a great question. It's almost like 
it's like almost like a different sport. You know, every sport, it's the same thing happens, bigger, stronger, faster. And tennis has been no exception. Uh, The thing about tennis also, the technology has changed so much, you know, from, from the rackets to the graphite, you know, to the composites. I mean, you could go on and on and just like the string they use. So everything has become more explosive. You know, it's almost like we're playing, you know, it's like pinball. You know, everything's in a state of flux. Uh, athleticism has become more premium. Movement is more premium. I mean, you can almost go back even, you know, 15 years ago. And if you watch video, it almost looks like in slow motion. And that's nothing against the players that played. It's just that they're delivering the goods at a different speed, whether it be the serve, the ground stroke. So just the overall athlete has changed dramatically. And like any other sport, you know, the health, nutrition, but just the type of athletes that mm-hmm. have come into tennis on both the men and women, that's been the biggest changer, you know, and even when, you know, in the early nineties and, you know, I know we'll probably get to the Venus and Serena stuff. Um, you know, what I saw, you know, after I saw it and it took me a while, I not only knew they'd be one in the world and they were nine and 10, they brought something because they had this rage inside of them to get to the ball, but they were going to bring movement and tennis in the nineties. If you were kind of big and strong, you weren't nimble. So that's the biggest thing. And so they not only changed the game, they brought a whole different athlete into the game. So that's, what's changed the most. And obviously you're seeing guys like my good friend, Riley Opelka or, or Isner, those guys could be shooting jumpers in the NBA, you know, and they're close to seven feet tall. So, I tell everybody, if I'd had LeBron at 10 years old, I had no doubt I could make him number one in the world. Yeah, tough, tough uh, 7-6-7-6 loss yesterday for Opelka, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that in just a second. His, I think his tiebreak record I had seen before that match was something obscene at like 18-2 and two or 3 or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's just amazing. Yeah. Let me build on uh, what yeah. you said as well. How about the role? And by the way, this is not everybody's cup of tea, but we're an analytics show. So could you tell us how you as a coach, how does the amount of data and information you use to help support, mentor, and guide your player. How has the role of data changed in the game since now, in theory, you know, everything about the player's movement, you know, we can all have chips on us so we can measure movement and speed. Um, How has all of that changed for you and for the game more broadly? No, it's, you know, first off, another great question. And it's a game changer simply because it's one more tool in the toolbox. You know, I do a lot of stuff uh, with biomechanics. My partner, Brian Gordon, he has his PhD in biomechanics. You know, he did his whole thesis on it. So, you know, this is kind of my wheelhouse with stroke production and stroke mechanics. So when you get into the high-speed video and looking at things at 400 frames a second, and you're getting all this analysis and data in real time, it really gives you a blueprint or roadmap. And when you show this to the parents, and the kids, they're kind of blown away because the facts don't lie. You know, science doesn't lie. Now, mm-hmm. all that being said, uh, nothing takes the place of the eyeball test. You know, what I tell her by what you may see is different than Rick may see. So well, let me ask you about that, Rick. Is, you know, let me, yeah, let me ask you that question. So um, I completely agree that, uh, and I'm a PhD data scientist, that data science is meant to be a decision support tool. 
it's not meant to make all the decisions. Could you give our listeners an example of something that you would see, whether it was when you discovered and saw Venus and Serena in Compton, or you saw, you know, wow, this six foot 11 guy, Riley Opelka can really play. Can you give us an example of what the eye can see that today, at least technology and data science and video isn't going to pick up? Yeah, no. And that's, that's the wild card. You know, if you listen, you don't know what's in someone's head. You don't know what's inside someone's chest. And, you know, just to use, we can even talk about Roddick a little bit, even though he might have been a little limited in some areas. If I go back to Venus and Serena, you know, at nine and 10, when I went out to Compton and when we first got on the court, and by the way, it's the first time I ever went anywhere to see a player. They either came to the academy or I saw them at a national tournament. And uh, you got to remember my blueprint before that was Jennifer Capriotti, and she won the girls' 18s as a 12-year-old. And that, that will never be done. That was in 88, and that record still stands today. I mean, think about it. A 12-year-old winning the national 18s. I mean, she had her racket back in the parking lot. Her knees were bent, and uh, she had great fundamentals by the late, great Jimmy Everett. So just when I saw Venus and Serena, and they were 9 and 10, but there was arms, legs, hair, beads flying off their head. I mean, it was all over the map. And, you know, it's so there were maybe 50, 60, 70 in the country. And I'm thinking, what am I doing in Compton, California on a Saturday? You know, but then when I said we're going to play competitive points and this was like an hour into the training and it was me and Serena because she was Venus was almost 510 and Venus was a lot better. The whole landscape changed. I mean, the stock went through the roof all of a sudden. The footwork got better. They were popping the popcorn, extra butter. The preparation was more dynamic. But as I mentioned earlier, the burning desire, the burning desire to get to the ball was brutal. I mean, everybody tries hard, me, you, everybody. But this was, I never saw two little girls try so hard to get to a ball and it was like, like I said, there was a rage inside. I've slow, Rick, I have now. three, I have three sons and I've seen it. I have one son who is a competitive, he, he's on Penn squash team, which just played unfortunately and lost yesterday, but for the national championship and every ball he's ever seen in any sport, he's going after like his life depends on it. It's just, and, and you can, and it's not like you just can't, te- and to me, I, maybe you can teach that. I just don't know. I, I, I've never seen it that taught. But I completely understand that some people just have this innate desire, especially in competition. I've seen great people in practice, but the minute the match comes, they're no good. And I've seen vice versa. Yeah, because you're no, you're right. You know, it's like, you know, it's a great quality that's going to stick with you the rest of your life. Forget tennis or any other sport. And so but I just saw that. And then I started thinking you know, six feet, 160, 511, 150. I start projecting like six years down the road where this could come. And so that you're never going to get that on, you know, video, or you're never going to get that through analytics and data or whatever. And another thing, Venus, she used to make more mistakes than anybody, but they were positive errors because she was going for the jugular. She had one thing that I always look for and I try to build into all these kids that I've had national champions over 300 is it's crazy is courage. And with Mm. Venus and Serena, they made more positive errors. They would pull the trigger. 
Now, as we both know, there's a fine line between courage and stupidity. So sometimes it's good to have both, but this is, and if you look at the players that I've worked with, McKinnon, Mesquina, Pierce, Sharapova, Capriotti, you know, Avina, Serena, there's one common thread, you know, they take the ball early. They're not afraid to miss. And this is what I loved also about Richard because he knew what this was all about. So not to get off track here, those are things that are intangible and you're not going to see that on a stat sheet and stats. All it is is a tool. And I definitely, I definitely use it. And I think everybody should understand it's just a mechanism, a tool, but you got to look the whole body of work and you got to look at it in many different situations. You can't just look at it one time because the weather could be different. The opponent's different. You're feeling different. So you got to take this data before you really make an analysis, but that has helped more coaches, but it's also, in my opinion, hurt people because they're, they get so hooked up on that. They forget, you know, running, jumping and fighting and just want to knock you out can still carry the day. So let me ask you a question as, as a coach, um, let's imagine you have a player who's got great strengths. Maybe it's Riley Opelka, who's six foot 11, who's got a monster serve. But of course, it's as you can imagine, well, you know, it's probably harder for him to have. He's never going to have the movement of a Novak Djokovic uh, because it's just impossible for someone that size to. From a perspective of getting the most out of a player, do you work on his strengths or her strengths? Or do you work on their weaknesses? Or do you do a some combination of both? First off, uh, great question, because, you you know, at that level, you can't really hide, you know, and for right. there's no hiding. Calls, exactly. Right. Yeah, you can't hide it. You know, you can hide in the juniors and all that nonsense. But, you know, at that level, you can't hide. But Riley actually is pretty nimble and can move pretty good for seven feet. But definitely you make his strength better. OK. And his serve, he has a great knee bend, even though he's seven feet tall. It's one thing to be that tall. It's another thing to get it in on break point. You know, so you can't just say he's tall. That's why he has a good serve. Biomechanics, I mean, the guy's money in the bank, or I should say money ball in the bank. The guy is money, okay? And even at 12 years old, when I worked with him at the USTA, uh, you know, I used to tell him to step on a bug with that back foot, the way he pushes down and goes up vertical. So you're, what you, the question you asked was great because someday – somewhere against somebody it's going to be one volley or one return or you know be able to hit the back and up the line especially with Riley because look like you said he's like 18 and whatever in tiebreakers I mean he's not going to be you know just out ground stroking someone so but he does have the ability to play much other and a lot of other shots and he does spend a lot of time on everything and that's why I think you know with some of these guys maybe heading out uh, he might have a chance uh, to grab a Grand Slam. We're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Rick Macy. Rick has over 40 years of experience working with uh, top tennis players of the world, the who's who's of tennis, including Serena and Venus Williams, Andy Roddick, Maria Sharapova, Jennifer Capriati, Mary Pierce, and even currently uh, with current players out there, Sophia Kennan is one, Riley Opelka is others. Uh, and if again, if you have a question throughout the week you uh, for Rick, we can always pass it on to him. You can always reach out to us at on Twitter at at W Moneyball, and of course at our email, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Um, could you talk to us, you know, one of the things we always want to know when we speak to a coach who's at the highest level of their game is what impact does a coach have 
on a player. Like, let's imagine I'm Eric Bradlow. Let's imagine I had seen, I mean, let's imagine I was an, a, a good tennis coach, but not a great tennis coach. What impact difference would there be between me coaching the greats that you have or you coaching the greats that you have? Um, well, hey, first off, an, another amazing question. You know, um, great is kind of rare air. You know, that's a special fraternity. And, you know, everybody can bring something to the table. But how you say it, why you say it, when to say it, how to deal with the parents, how to motivate, educate. There's an art to this. It's like, you know, when I teach, and I actually still teach 50 hours a week of private seven days, I probably teach more than anybody in the country. It's a combination of everything. It's not just, okay, here's what you got to do with the forehand, and this is how I want the ATP forehand hit, or this is how Humpty Dumpty's put together on the serve with biomechanics. It's just a treasure trove of stuff that I have to use that day, that time. Let me ask you also a related question to that, which is, um, I assume, like, you know, since I know probably more from a biomechanics perspective about a sport like baseball or basketball, um, which just because I played them more than I played tennis, um, that you always hear this person has their own swing. Is that going to work in tennis? I mean, you see so many different styles of swings, but I would assume at the point of impact, there has to be something common or something good is not going to happen. How much can players, like, how much do you see a natural swing of somebody and say, that swing will work? Or how much do you actually have to retool and change somebody's swing? First off, everybody, uh, there's not a wrong way or right way. There's a better way. Obviously, if you can run like the wind, and you can get set, and you have good timing and great hand-eye, that's going to get you to a certain level. But there's an optimal way to do things. I tell people all the time, you know, like the men, their look a little a little different swing, okay, because the game's faster, their stroke is shorter, but they made it I put together long ago. It kind of explains exactly what Federer's doing and, and people like that. So, you know, to be natural and just swing, that helps. You don't want to be like the tin man. You know, it's better to be loose and fluid in any sport, like a golf swing. So the fluidity helps, but there's an optimal way to do this because the ball's coming anywhere eventually, 60 to 100 miles an hour. But if you can get there and get set and you don't blink, that carries the day. But why do people say Djokovic has the best backhand or they love Federer's uh, forehand? or Roddick serve is optimal. You know, we get into these like cloning of who's better. So I use those people a lot of times for the kids, but I tell them, I don't want you to do it because they do it. I say, this is the optimal way to do it. Look where the racket is. Look at this, look at that. And by the way, this is what they do. Cause see, cause I've studied this so much with biomechanics, these guys check all the boxes. So to answer your question, yeah, if you have a more natural swing, whether it's a club player. I mean, I had an 80-year-old guy in here last week. I changed his elbow position one minute, and he goes, Rick, I haven't felt that in 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bad night, and, and, you know, that guy could be a little stiff. So what I'm trying to say is um, fluidity helps, but tennis is very, very different because you got to run, then there's anxiety, and there's pressure, and there's maybe a more percentage way to hit the ball. But strokes mechanics is at an all-time high, um, especially today, and it's only going to become more and more prominent 
because the game is just so fast. So let's talk about the future of tennis. Um, I could talk to you for hours about all the people you've uh, coached in the past, but how do you see, let's at least start with the men's game, but I'm just as interested in the women's game and our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know that. How do you see the future of the men's game? Because while right now it's not looking like, at least for Federer, it's likely to be soon. I don't know if uh, Djokovic is stopping anytime soon, but what do you see as the future of the men's game once, in quotes, the big three are gone? Like, who are the up-and-coming players you see? Obviously, Medvedev has played very well recently, you know, making two straight Grand Slam finals and winning one. Zverev looks like he... It, the future at some point will probably win one. Tsitsipas looks quite uh, accomplished. Uh, FAA looks quite accomplished. How do you see the men's game going forward? And which which players excite you the most as both a coach, but also just putting on your fan hat? First off, another great question. And believe it or not, to me, it's an easy answer. It's Alcarez from Spain. Okay, Just as you this know, guy, won a title. Yes, at age 18, he just won a title yesterday. There you go. Yeah. God, you've been around the block. You know, you know what's going on here with tennis. I like this. But no, listen, he, okay, here's why. He mentally, I see where that's going. Once he gets experience, he gets out there, gets the big C, more confidence. Uh, that is the evolution of any player in any sport, as we all know. Okay, we go LeBron, any quarterback. Once you start, you know, proving it to yourself and you get the big C, then you just look at the world through a different set of eyes and you start owning people. You don't hope to win. You expect to win. But here's this guy. He is rock solid off the ground and hits the crap out of the ball. So he can hurt you off the ground. But the wild card, he's one of the fastest guys in the world. And he has a brutal drop shot. So, I mean, I, nothing against Rafa because obviously we're sitting here and this kid's 18 and who knows where he's going to be if he doesn't get hurt, but I can see him, you know, winning the French open. Okay. Just like ordering lunch. I mean, you're going to be able to mail it in. That's how good this guy is on dirt. Okay. And he's, he's still a kid because of his foot speed, firepower. Okay. And he's already trying to intimidate people by wearing the cutoff sleeves and, you know, pumping up the biceps. And so he's the real deal. Why do you like him more? He has it. Just for our listeners, why do you like well, him? I, but, but, no, no, no. Let me let me just say, why do you like him more on the clay versus hard courts, or maybe you like him on both? Well, I like him on both, but he can be penetrated a little bit more. The serve can hurt him a little bit more on hard. Other people can hurt him a little bit more on hard. That doesn't mean he's not going to, you know, win the Australian or U.S. Open. He will. He, no, this kid's going to win all that stuff. But it's just easier. It's like Federer at the French. It's just easier for other people to hurt this guy on a faster surface. But when I say hurt, that, that means they have a better chance eventually to, like, you know, hurt him with the serve or because the game's going to be a little quicker on those type surfaces. But on clay, when he can just, he grew up on clay, he's from Spain, right. you know, and he's going <laughs> to, it's a whole different deal. Well, so he also has I, a different advantage. Think... That he also has a different advantage. If you're 26 or 27 or 28 right now, which many people would consider the prime of their career, you may be in your early 30s by the time the big three are actually gone. This guy, he's got, I mean, even if we say it's four or five years until the big three are all gone, he's only 22 or 23 then. So he has just more years also to play without them being around. Yeah, no, it's a great point. You know, so, you know, I think Fed, he's like heading out the door. And, you know, so 
but Joker's going nowhere. Rafa, what happened to Australian was like, that was incredible. It just incredible. shows you all those yes, all those yesterdays, you know, as they tell everybody, that's why that day happened. You know, that wiring starts at a young age, just like I saw Venus and Serena. I mean, that's put in at a young age. Alcarez has this, but to go back in a little bit, Medvedev, people don't realize, even though he's wiry and gangly and he does some unique things, you got to remember he's 6'6", and he runs like Batman and Spider-Man, and the guy can hit on the run like anybody. And you watch him return serve, he's like standing in the parking lot. But you you got to be able to move like that and have tentacles like that to play like that. And he gave one of my famous quotes of all time. He was interviewed. I tell the kids this all the time. He was interviewed after the match, and he, they asked him a question about, you know, what he thought of the match. And he just said, you know, I, I just like to torture people, you know. So it wasn't even about winning. You know, it was just like, I just want to keep running this guy and torture him. So when you're at that level, that's like a whole nother level. So that shows me mentally he's like an amazing competitor. He's not going anywhere. I see Alcarez going in there. The other guys you mentioned, uh, they're going to definitely be in there. I like Corda with the Americans. You know, I think there's a lot of genetics there that are really going to help him. He has a clean game. I see a lot of potential there. A couple of the Americans could grab a slam once, like you said, the big three get out of there. But for American tennis, um, I don't, you know, to grab one is one thing. But to stay there, like I said earlier, greatness is rare air. You know, anybody can do one. But to stay there, it's different. But the guys I mentioned, I think they can uh, get there and stay there and win uh, many, many grand slams. So, Rick, we only have about two minutes left. Uh, so could you tell me, how about on the women's side? Of course, the women's side, you know, when Serena stopped winning every major, um, has changed in the sense that, uh, I mean, obviously, Ash Barty's been incredible the last two years, but there's a lot of people winning majors on the women's side. In the next, like, just two minutes we have left, how do you see the women's side moving forward? There's so many players I love watching. Yeah, you know, it's a jump ball. You know, Barty, by far, is the leader in the clubhouse. Uh, great serve. Great athlete, great composure. Win in Australia is going to change the landscape. Now she's going to, I think she'll get on a roll. She's the favorite. Osaka, still one of the best athletes, but I don't know where her head's at. But those two are really the, the two to beat if Osaka stays in there. But I think for the future, you're going to see even better athletes, bigger, stronger, faster. You're going to see, you know, the Venus and Serena. I think Coco's going to take a little more time. I feel her forehand still a little dicey, but she's the best, one of the best athletes out there. But the women's just so wide open. I could see, you know, people 20 in the world winning a Grand Slam like you saw at the U.S. Open. It's like a qualifier and someone else, you know, getting to the final. So it's a little bit different with the women because it's not quite as physical, you know. Uh, but then again, for American women, I think there's a lot, a lot of come, a lot of good players coming down the pipe. Um, if Kennan gets her head back in the game, she's always a tough cookie. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens. Well, Rick, it's been fantastic talking to you. I, I think, um, you know, one of these days I'd love to just meet you in person. We could sit down. I don't know if you drink beer, but I'd love to buy you a beer and just hear all the stories you have because um, all the people that you've coached, it's been remarkable. These are some of them from my childhood, some of them even today. And, um, you know, again, we've been talking to Rick Macy. Uh, Rick has been coach of the Who's Who of Tennis, seven-time United States Professional Tennis Association Coach of the Year. Rick, 
it's been a thrill to have you here joining us on Morton Moneyball. No, my pleasure, and we'll do it again. And if you're ever in Florida and Boca, give me a holler, and we'll get together. Sounds great. Thank you again, Rick. So this has been four quarters. Yeah, thank you again. This has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. Uh, I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, On behalf of myself, uh, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey, uh, some combination of the four of us are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.